HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Greetings from Cheeselandia, where cheese lovers, cheese makers, cheese nibblers, and cheese curious are all welcome. Find the really good stuff, meet the makers, and connect with fellow travelers on the cheese way of life. Visit wisconsincheese.com to learn more and sign up. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast, the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome the Executive Director of Spoons Across America, James Grosso. In today's episode, we'll talk to Jim about why teaching kids to cook makes a lifelong difference. How Spoons has gone nationwide, and we'll hear Jim's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Julia prided herself on being a cooking teacher. Even as Julia became a TV star, she always saw her role on TV as that of an educator as well as an entertainer. She knew that all the best teachers were entertaining. And rather than resting on her laurels as an expert, she saw herself as an eternal student always ready to learn or try something new. The best teachers do remain lifelong learners. While Julia was a late bloomer, something that continues to inspire many today, she also knew that the earlier you learned something, the better off you'd be. She was adamant that you had to know where food comes from to properly appreciate it. If you've never been exposed to the farmers, ranchers, and artisans who make our food, you won't adequately value what goes into it. This all informs the subject of today's show, the innovative children's food literacy nonprofit, Spoons Across America, whose work the foundation has been supporting for more than a decade. 
That support dates back to Julia's own interest in food literacy. Spoons quotes Julia as having said, In this age of fast and frozen foods, we want to teach school children about real food, where it is grown, and how it is produced, so they can develop an understanding and appreciation of how good, fresh food is supposed to taste. Taste, of course, being paramount to Julia. Someone else dedicated to Julia's cause is James Grosso, executive director of Spoons Across America. Spoons is a leading resource for children's nutrition-based educational programming. In his role as executive director, Jim leads fundraising, public relations, and program development. Our good friend, Chef Jacques Pepin, is Spoons' national spokesperson, after having been the first recipient of Spoons' Award for Excellence in 2015, which I note is the very same year he became the first recipient of the Foundation's Julia Child Award. Great minds appreciate the best chefs. Jim is a seasoned nonprofit manager. He held multiple leadership positions in organizations like Juvenile Diabetes International, Hartley House, Birch Family Services, and at the Leukemia Lymphoma Society. He's applied his background in health-related nonprofits to Spoon's recognition that children's diet significantly impact their prospects for good health as adults. A native New Yorker and graduate of Queens College, my mother's own alma mater, Jim also likes to make his art in his spare time. He joins us today to tell us more about Spoons and how the pandemic has reshaped their work. Welcome to the podcast, Jim. Thank you, Todd. I'm, uh, it's my pleasure to be here today and speak with you. Well, it's great to have you on to talk about Spoons, which, uh, as I said, the foundation has been supporting for quite some time. And I wanted to start with just kind of an introduction to Spoons. So tell us a little bit more about what Spoons Across America's recipe for healthier children is and how do you make that dish? <laughs> well, Todd, like any other uh, recipe, it takes a number of ingredients. Um, you know, uh, no recipe begins with just one or two little flavors. So for us, it involves parents, educators, children, hands-on experiences, and children actively working with food. I mean, those are the basic pieces. Uh, it gets more complicated there when we get into our different types of programs. So one thing I wanted you to kind of explain that I think is unique to Spoons' program is I'm, I'm not sure relies on is the right word, but you have a kind of multi-year model. It's not, you know, one program for six weeks and you're done, although maybe it can work that way. Can you just describe a little bit more about how, how it's designed? Sure. You know, when Spoons first started out, uh, they started out with basically one big program. It was their dinner party project. They'd travel across the nation, go to different cities, work with schools, uh, teach children about food, nutrition, flavors, uh, and then they would work with those children to have a dinner party at their school with their parents. Um, excellent program. Brought a lot of luminaries in who were interested. However, you know, we soon realized, and I, I know I realized, that in order for a child to continue to keep their interest in food exploration, it had to progress. So starting from the earliest in the first grade, 
all the way through to the fifth, the, the programming becomes a little bit more complex. You might just start out with flavors in the first and observation. And by the time you get to the fifth grade, you're making recipes and cooking. And so you found that this model kind of brings more of a, I don't know, longevity to the understanding for the children who are exposed to it? Exactly. Uh, when our work with the public schools in New York City, uh, when we go into a school, we're there. We stay there year after year after year. So the child who saw us in the first grade and experienced their first Spoons program, um, five years later, they were working in a Spoons program. Uh, so it stayed with them over a course of five years, and they remembered what they learned in earlier grades. We, we hear that from the children all the time. So obviously with COVID and that you're essentially, at least as I understand it, an in-school program, I assume that the pandemic has been pretty disruptive to not just the lives of children, but your programs. Could could you speak to sort of how Spoon's work kind of post-pandemic, if we're not quite post-pandemic, to pre? Like how does it compare or, or how have you adapted Sure, Todd. You know, uh, like every other organization that worked directly with children, their constituents, um, we went from being in a classroom to being nowhere. Um, and it was a challenge. Uh, but I soon realized that our programming was so solid, the curriculum, the foundation of the entire course, uh, was strong enough for us to translate into something for children to do at home with their parents. So basically, the work now is all being done through a, a program we call Spoons at Home, which actually brings two free programs. And there are actually two very small, modest fee programs that we have for parents who truly want to get into teaching their children about healthier eating. Uh, the biggest challenge we had working from in the schools to in the home was how do we translate all that institutional knowledge that we have for over 20 years and put it into print uh, so that a parent can follow a curriculum guide who could understand our philosophy, our approach, our methodology. Um, why were they doing this? What outcomes should they expect? Um, that was a challenge. However, we soon realized that there were many families out there who really wanted this program. The pandemic obviously pushed all children into the home. So it was, uh, it was readily brought up by a lot of people. And so have your in-school programs resumed or are they still because they're deemed maybe non-core or something still on pause or what's the situation with the in-school? Well, you know, it's in, it, it, our in-school programs take place both in New York City, uh, but we also have in-school programs that we have for other locations across the country. Um, as a matter of fact, if I may, right before the pandemic, uh, in January of 20, uh, we had about 20 schools across the nation who were going to be doing what we do in New York in their school. Uh, in New Orleans, Mississippi Delta, Detroit, Oakland, Milwaukee, Boston, and Los Angeles. And the moment they started ramping up, they stopped uh, mm. because of the pandemic. And we too have not gone back into the schools yet. I stay in touch with our principals uh, to see when and how. But if you think about it, Todd, our, our programming is hands-on. There's food, there's taste, 
there's touch, there's smell. Um, impossible with a mask on. Mm. So is the plan and hope that you would resume that or are you pivoting to more of a, uh, I mean, do you think the the family home base thing is going to become a more permanent part of Spoon's programming? Uh, Spoon's at home will always be a part of our programming because of the great interest. I, I mean, Todd, we have 47 states now uh, represented with uh, children and their families doing our programming. Um, amazing jump. Uh, so the, the interest is across all spectrum of ethnicities, uh, geographic, et cetera. Um, but we will always work in the schools directly. Uh, we began that way and we're not going to stop doing that. So it'll be, it will do both. So, so it's just a matter of sort of the time when the schools are in a position to welcome you back from health and safety kind of ways. Exactly. And you know, it's not, Todd, it's not just the health and safety issue that was preventing us from going back in. Uh, Children lost a year or more of school. Uh, Academically, they need to focus there and put all their attention there first. And we we fully support them in that. Uh, We would love to be in the classroom, but we fully understand. I'm hoping maybe if we're lucky late spring, we could start resuming. Um, But you know, I'm a realist. We'll, we'll do it when it's appropriate. Well, that makes sense. I was going to say, is is there a pandemic silver lining to this? And it sounds like you could interpret it as, as that it's enabled you maybe a forced break to expand the, the, the parent and child at home program. Exactly. You know, Todd, I, I hate to say that we always have to look for the silver lining and everything that's negative. Mm. Um, uh, but it's true. Uh, this is something we've been wanting to figure out how to do. And we just had to figure out how to do it. And it did push us forward faster than maybe we had planned. Uh, but it, it is definitely a benefit. And now we are in homes with parents and their children. There's nothing more exciting than when we get emails from parents or messages saying that they love teaching this program to their children. And I guess my question would be, as a parent who's trying to juggle many things, um, from my point of view, I was like, oh, the thought of trying to add one more thing. But what are you hearing? Are are parents who are motivated finding this helpful because it gives them more one more thing to do with, with children who have downtime? Or what's been the kind of, I guess, motivation from parents about wanting to do it? You know, the first motivation is that they're interested in their children's health. Uh, that I would start there. Uh, everyone who, every parent who subscribes or uh, takes our curriculum and, and works on it at home with their children, it's their child's health that always came first. But if you think about it, our programs are designed to be hands-on. What prevented us from being in the school is working well at home. Uh, All throughout the pandemic, you had children and parents scratching their heads and becoming frustrated at looking at a screen and listening to someone on a screen. And how do I learn from this digital new format? Well, our programs are hands-on. It was a respite. It was a break. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's something they could do with their children no different than if they went on a hike together. It's something physical. It's interactive. And I think children and parents both 
uh, gravitated to that because it got them away from the screen. And remind us that the the target ages from, I think you said, first to fifth grade? Yes. You know, we could stretch it down to seven to 12. There are, there are always younger children. Uh, matter of fact, in all of our writings and our curriculum instructions for parents, we explain that you know your child best. Um, if they're a little bit more advanced and they're young, uh, you know, bring them in earlier. You might have to work with them closer. However, if they're a little older and still interested, make sure they participate. Well, that's all great to hear. And, and I think from the foundation's point of view, it's always been um, our desire to see Spoons actually be more fully across America than, than New York-centric. So it sounds like you've really made great strides in accomplishing that. Yes, we're, we're very proud of what we were able to accomplish uh, throughout this ridiculously difficult time for everyone. Um, and it's nice to come out on the other end so far in a stronger position. Well, I wanted to ask you, because Spoons has enjoyed great support from a lot of leaders in the food world, and, and it might be location with just so many being concentrated in New York, but, you know, I mentioned Jacques Pepin and Jose Andres and Daniel Balud and Rachel Ray and Gail Simmons are all um, vocal supporters of Spoons. And I, I was curious what you thought was the attraction of why so many Lumeries have, have, have lent their support to, to Spoons. Yeah, we are very, very lucky to have, I mean, so, I mean culinary legends um, who fully support us. Uh, you know, but if you think about it, uh, each one might come from it from a different point of view. Uh, Jacques Pepin is all about family, socialization, cooking with your children. Uh, Jose Andres, right? I mean, my God, the World Central Kitchen. It's about feeding people, food access, security. Uh, Gail Simmons has been a big supporter of women in culinary world and working with women and giving them future careers. Uh, I can move on and on with all of them. But the one ingredient they all share is food. They all recognize it's food that unites, that brings people together and educates them. Um, I think the, I think our hands-on programming that empowers children to independently make healthy food choices, I think that attracts them. We don't lecture. We're not there to say, don't ever do this. Uh, our goal is to get children to understand their own palate, understand food, their relationship to food. Because, uh, you know, in the future, they very well might be sitting in one of these restaurants from one of these chefs and truly appreciate everything they're eating. That's great. All right, after the break, we'll be back with more from Spoons Across America's Executive Director, James Grosso. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Greetings from Cheeselandia, the ultimate community of cheese lovers. Cheeselandia is your golden pathway to the world of Wisconsin artisanal cheese, where you can immerse yourself in a vibrant society of cheese, in real life and online. Join this community of fellow travelers from all 50 states on the Cheeseway of life and enjoy member-only events. Attend the School of Cheese, pursue cheese quests, and apply to host your own Cheeselandia house party. Visit wisconsincheese.com slash cheeselandia to join. 
Welcome back. We're talking to James Grosso, the executive director of Spoons Across America, about the pandemic's impact on our kids' eating. So, Jim, I wanted to take it a little broader than just specifically Spoon's program, but to the kind of talk a little bit more about how the pandemic has affected our kids and sort of what families are confronting right now. And I was curious, you know, we're coming up on the end of 2021, which seems to have, despite the pandemic, flown by. And I wondered what you think has been some of the major impacts on our children's nutrition and on their education around cooking um, in 2021. Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, it has been a challenge. There are so many worthwhile organizations out there that are bringing uh, one aspect or another of healthy eating, local sourcing uh, into classrooms and into community organizations and working with children. And we all work with food and we all work hands on. Um, And they work in the cafeterias of, of schools to help children get and obtain healthier foods. So the, the the pandemic this past year, I mean, it really has hurt, it has hurt the children um, in many ways. Uh, it, it has stopped them from knowing they could receive that healthy meal in the classroom. Uh, so many families are, are having a challenge in, to feed their families, whereas the school was always there mm. to make sure the child got fed. Um, Parents were struggling to keep their jobs and work with their children, and they didn't always have time to make sure their children were eating healthier. Um, I think the future is bright, though. I, I truly do. I think we will get back to a more normal situation where children will be exposed to better foods again and more programming like spoons across America and when they get back into schools and a lot of their community-based organizations. I mean, would you go as far as saying that you actually think, you know, particularly for people on the lower end of the income threshold, that children's actual health and nutrition has likely been impacted over the last 18 months? Well, it has. I mean, think about this. Uh, It costs money to feed. It costs a lot of money to buy fresh foods. Um, Parents can't always do that. Uh, they can't take the risk of wasting that food that child might not eat. Um, so therefore, I mean, you know, that's one of the reasons why our programming is so valued by by educators and parents is that we do the tasting and the testing for them. We give the child the opportunity to say yuck or yum. Um, not when the parent made the food, cooked it, put it on the plate, and the child just pushes it away. Um, so, you know, that's what they love about us. And I think that's what they love about our programming at home. Um, but it is a challenge. I think a lot of, uh, I think a lot of families had to resort to foods that were not necessarily as healthy because it was easier. Um, and let's be honest, uh, throughout the pandemic, we all, I think, indulged in that extra <laughs> bag of chips and cake and cookies and everything else that <laughs> would make us feel good. No, that's true. Um, So you were speaking of your optimism. So I was curious, and we were just speaking about how, particularly from those from less advantaged backgrounds, that food insecurity has has been a significant issue. With 2022 upon us, what, what, what do you see in your crystal ball for American children and their eating? 
You know, uh, Todd, as a, a nonprofit professional, uh, one of the things that's built into our DNA is to be an optimist. Uh, we, you, you can't be a nonprofit unless you constantly believe everything is possible. Uh, <laughs> so in the long term, I believe that as, as people, as a country, we'll do the right thing uh, and make sure that food insecurity goes away. But it's a complex issue. Uh, it, it's a combination of finances. It's a combination of, of health needs. Uh, there are families even with money who have specific health needs who find it difficult to eat properly within that with for their specific condition. Um, you know, the access to food is getting better. Uh, but you know, I, I, I think we we need to somehow convince, uh, and I think we're slowly getting there. We need to convince everyone that when you give a community access to healthy foods, when you erase the food insecurity, you're helping that community. It might not be yours. So whether it's through donations, activities, supporting uh, legal law, whatever is necessary, uh, you're strengthening that particular community and your own. And when you strengthen one community, it goes out. The band keeps going out. That community's strong, therefore that city is strong, therefore that state is strong, and therefore that country is strong. And if we can get people to start thinking about those expanding concentric circles um, for any kind of a social uh, service, uh, it's going to make everyone better. You know, it's sort of like we all rise at the same time, uh, but it's not always an easy task to convince people. But I believe I believe it's doable. Yeah, I, I actually just flashed to uh, what Chef Rick Bayless and some of the programs he's been working on in Chicago, even though I think the pandemic really had a huge impact on his restaurant and his business, which was very much reliant on, on in-person stuff, but that he was looking at. Um, I'm not sure which neighborhood in Chicago that's very adjacent to his, you know, high-end restaurant and looking at growing food there and hiring people from those neighborhoods as an important, almost self-interested symbiotic um, relationship. Exactly. You know, Todd, one of the things about our expansion across the country with our Spoons at Home programming um, and spoons in the schools. Let's not forget we, we, we are expanding in schools and, and uh, community-based organizations. Our, our goal here is to get the community to teach the community. We want that community to own what we're giving them. We, we did the work. We did the research. Take it into your community and you teach it in your community. You fine tune it to work within your community. Every neighborhood's the same. I, I know, I believe you said you were not from New York, but as a native New Yorker, mm -hmm. uh, East, West, Brooklyn, Queens, <laughs> you name it, they're, they're, there's completely different communities. Um, and when you take that and expand it out across the country, it's even more. We don't assume we know the answer for every community. But we do have a formula. We do have a recipe that you can start with and you know, bring it to them. I assume some of that, for example, might be that in, in the, the first things when kids are just smelling and tasting things and trying to identify what they are, a specific community could substitute something more um, appropriate or familiar for that particular ethnic group, per se. 
Exactly. You know, when we we did a program uh, out in Bettendorf, Iowa, uh, it was a pilot at the time. I was working with an after school and there are those, there was a section about what what's local. What does local and seasonality mean? Well, you know, in New York, we were talking about apples in the fall and, and tomatoes in the summer. Well, in Bettendorf, Iowa, they were talking about corn. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so they, they, they change it. And, and that slight little subtle change really makes a difference. And it connects to a child, gets them connected. So I wanted to, we've touched upon it, but we haven't sort of talked to it directly. But certainly in our last episode, we were talking about the inflation and the rising cost of food in particular and, and specific foods. And obviously, that has an impact. I thought it would be helpful for our listeners if, if you maybe commented on just framing the impact that the rising cost of food ends up having on children's health as a whole. Well, if yeah, if Todd, if you're if your choice is, or, or let me let me re- begin. You want to create a healthy meal for your child. You want to go out and buy the freshest vegetables. You want to get the best protein you can, whether it's plant-based or, or, or otherwise. Um, and you want to have a balanced dish in front of them. Well, if you're financially challenged, you might have to choose. What part of that do I leave out? Or do I cut it down to even less? Um, you know, what we hope comes from some of our lessons. Uh, and, and the parents learn an awful lot. Uh, I have parents saying, I never knew any of this uh, what, before they teach their children. Uh, what, the, what our programs help people to understand is that they can actually make a healthier meal out of less, fewer ingredients. Um, you know, it, it, it's not easy. I mean, and I'm not speaking about college days of ramen or, you know, hot dogs or something. You know, we're talking about really knowing how can I choose something a little bit more healthy for my family and maybe not have as high a quantity of it, but yet they're going to receive a maximum nutrition from it. Um, it what it's would, actually, I think it's helpful. What would be like a kind of specific example of that in terms of like actual foods that you would put in front of a kid or choice, choice between dishes? You know, one of my favorite things that we do with children early on is we teach them about beans and things like that. Um, I, I, I personally, uh, there is a lentil recipe that I grew up with that is filled with just one or two vegetables, usually a carrot and an onion uh, and lentils. And when one can afford it, some chicken stock or something, and if not, just water. Uh, it was a well, high protein meal. You know, if you could add a little little carb to it, you know, whether it be a slice of bread or not. Um, and if I may share one other one, mm-hmm. uh, when my family, my family did have rough times at points throughout their lives, as most families did. Um, there was one dish that, that they, my parents would make when money was scarce that consisted of tomato sauce. Uh, we were Italian, so tomato sauce was always there. Uh, there was a there was like a marinara sauce. There were green peas and a hard boiled egg. And I used to look at this as a child, going, "What you know? This is what we're eating." But it was balanced. It had a tomato for fruit. It it had peas for protein. It had the egg for protein, 
and we we ate it with a whole grain bread. I mean, something as simple as that. Who knew? Who knew it would come back as some one of my favorite things to make for comfort food? Well, I think those are great examples because I think it, it it's obvious how that's affordable, um, but maybe less obvious how nutritious it is, and that even in a modest portion that that's you know possibly better than something from a fast food place. Exactly. So to further benefit the parents who might be listening, uh, this is more less on the like what you put on the plate and maybe more of the educational side of thing. I was hoping you could sort of share if they're only going to take one thing away from this to do with their kids. What is one simple thing that parents can do to help their kids start to understand what makes for good food? The first thing they can do, if not the only thing they do, is cook with their children. Make sure you bring your child into the process of preparing food, tasting food, and enjoying food. Um, you know, that, that alone, if parents do that alone and take nothing else from our, our curriculum, they will soon find out that their child is more interested in foods and they're more willing to try something new. You know, don't we all feel good when we've created something, whether it's a meal or a work of art? Uh, we all feel a sense of accomplishment, empowerment, uh, a control. Um, I would say if they do nothing but bring them in when they're cooking and get them involved uh, with the actual cooking part, and you'd be surprised at the conversations and the questions that come up. Yeah, I'm flashing to both my own childhood and my own parenthood of just making pancakes and then realizing after you have pancakes from a box that making them from scratch is not that many steps more difficult. And that that's, I think, the kind of laddering up and kind of easy and fun experience that that actually I think people might be surprised at how much of a difference it can make. Absolutely true. All right. After the break, we're going to hear Jim's Julia moment. Get in touch. Send us an email or a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org or better yet, tweet us at juliachildjcf. Let us know what you think about today's show. Stay with us. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. No, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she's inspired them in their career. Jim, all right, what's your Julia Moment? You know, Todd, I mean, I I never got an opportunity to meet Julia uh, directly. But I did meet her early on when I was younger. Uh, I'm the youngest of four children. Um, and I remember being home. And I was young. I, I honestly can't recall what age, but very young. And, and I recall being in my room and I heard this voice. Uh, and I could not place this voice. Uh, <laughs> it was Julia. Uh, and she, it was so distinct and different. Uh, I thought it was amusing. As a child, I'm thinking, what is this a cat? Is this a character? That was my my goal, my thought. And I went out, and I think it was my my mother was watching this, 
woman on TV. And I became enthralled when I realized that she was doing something. She was like flipping foods, talking, and making it so simple and relaxed. Um, from watching that, she drew me in. She drew me in on my own uh, into food, into cooking. From there, it was Jacques Pepin on TV. Uh, you name them all. There was a succession of them that came afterwards. And I just watched, even if I was never going to make the food, there was just something mesmerizing about them. Uh, but little did I know, I actually learned from what I was watching. It, it seeped in. Uh, it was somewhere in the back recesses of my mind as I remember, like I go, why do I know that? I heard it way back then. Uh, mm -hmm. But that, that, that was my, fo my first Julia moment. I, I have to say it was different, <laughs> but it certainly stayed with me. Well, that's lovely. And, and now you're many years into expanding uh, Spoons Across America and, and fulfilling uh, something that, that Julia really valued. Yes, absolutely. I, I'm so glad that we have the support of the foundation over these years um, and that we've been able to take Julia's vision of eating local, healthy, handmade food and bring that message out to families and children uh, because in, in, in every age, life gets busier and busier um, and we, we lose these little pieces. When we lose the little things like that, uh, you realize that you lose the community too. So it, it, it's, it's good on so many levels. I think that's absolutely true and well put. Thank you very much for joining us to share all that uh, is going on at Spoons Across America. And uh, thank you for being here. Thank you, Todd. It's been a pleasure. And thanks everyone for listening. We at the Foundation wish you a very happy holiday season and good health in the new year which we are sincerely wishing for, for everyone. If you want to learn more, it's at Spoons Across America on Facebook, at Spoons underscore across underscore America on Instagram, and at Spoons A America on Twitter. And if you'd like to support their food literacy program for children this holiday season, you can go to SpoonsAcrossAmerica.org and click on Donate Today on the homepage. Keep up with our news and events in 2022. It's at Julia Child on Facebook and at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram. It's at Julia Child JCF and I'm at T. Shulkin on Twitter. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks to my co-producer of the foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network today, it was Kevin Barnum. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorni. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next season on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Inside Julia's Kitchen is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash 
Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.